0: Welcome listeners. Today's episode is a new segment that I'm working on that focuses on crime, mystery cases, murder, and insanity. I don't hold back information in these episodes and as a result, they're not for little ears. So please, any younglings around, turn it off, listen to one of my other episodes, and keep their minds safe. Today's topic will have content about child-related rape, sexual abuse, Murder, necrophilia, and more. At no point will these episodes glorify the criminal, but the aim here is to get a glimpse into what made them, if that's possible, what they did, the human lives they unrightfully took, how they were caught, what took place during sentencing, and after. I welcome your feedback in this episode, and I want to deliver as much polish on this as possible, so please, turn the lights off, lock your doors, and listen. Tsutomu Miyazaki. Born August 21st, 1962. Died June 17th, 2008. Criminal alias. The otaku murderer. Dracula. And the little girl murderer. With an alter ego of the ratman. Born in Japan. Criminal type. Serial killer, cannibal, Necrophile, Pedophile, Child Rapist, Criminal Activity, Murdering Young Girls, Vampirism, Cannibalism, and Body Part Hoarding, Number of People Killed, Four. Tsutomu Miyazaki was a Japanese-born serial killer that lived in Itsukaichi, Tokyo, Japan. Born to two parents, Katsumi Miyazaki, and one being one of Sutomu's older sisters, it is not specified which of his sisters gave birth to him. It was confirmed though that Katsumi Miyazaki, his father, had intercourse with one of his own children and not his wife that led to Sutomu being conceived. I was unable to identify which sister this was during my research. Tsutomu was a preterm baby, which usually means that the child's birth takes place more than three weeks before the baby is estimated to be due often starting on the 37th week of pregnancy, with varying ranges of medical complications and problems. Sutomo's birth was marred with one major deformity that would not only drastically impede his physical development, but have permanent and long-lasting effects on his mental development. Sutomo's wrists were missing their radiocarpal joint, which is the ulnar and articular disc that separates your wrist joint from your hand. Without those pieces, your wrist is fused to your hand as one piece. I'll include pictures of Sutomo's wrists in the episode notes if you're interested. This lack of articulation means the inability to tilt your wrists past a certain point. In this case, Sutomo's wrists were unable to raise above the wrist joint and only flex slightly down and left to right, making it really difficult to grapple things, pick things up, or hand objects to people. This deformity played a major role in his psychological descent into madness, both at a young age as a trigger, and into his adult years where the acts of violence he committed were perhaps reflections of his inability to come to terms with his deformity, and not to mention the subject of profound abuse. Due to his deformity, St. Thomas life began painfully, with extensive bullying at a young age. The book Supernatural Serial Killers What Makes Them Murder explains that Sutomu was viciously bullied, unaccepted and mocked constantly for having funny hands, later referred to as Dracula hands. At home he was treated with disgust by his family, his sisters found him repulsive due to this deformity, and Sutomu's parents were distant at best as a result. This constant bullying led to depression, pushing Sotomu into a life of solitude and loneliness. Relationships would have been perceived by Sotomu as something to avoid, only bringing more pain and sadness, rather than as a genuine relationship with love and compassion. After all, he's only been exposed to hate and cruelty. Now my focus isn't here to build sympathy for a serial killer. but... This is an opportunity at understanding his pathway into madness, with it arguably starting here. A life devoid of love. The lack of love and care from his family and peers play a major role in his future, and we'll explore later in this episode what he really wanted out of the people who were his family only in name. If you're constantly hammered by your peers, and you have no support from your family, The one bastion that you would think you could retreat to when the world becomes dark and cruel. A point in your life where guidance would be critical. Satomo was faced with a coldness that would freeze his heart and shape his mind as he grew up. One of the quirks that developed from his lack of familial bond had been seen quite early on, during family photos after the age of five. Satomo would always close his eyes during a family picture, a sort of objection to the image, his rejection of being part of that family. But this wasn't what Tsutomu wanted, in fact, one of the key desires of Tsutomu when questioned about his childhood was that all he really wanted was being listened to about his problems, with him stating his family would not have heard me if he tried. And his parents and family life were so cold and distant that he would contemplate suicide daily. Being abused, not being heard and without any moral support, an absent of love in any shape or form, Satoma was being moulded heavily into the creature he'd become. If a child isn't given love, how can a child show love? So, despite Satoma's deformity playing heavily in his life as a handicap, with no friends and no family support, that did not seem to affect his school performance. Initially, Satoma was achieving high grades at school, And it seemed like he could push past this problem and find an avenue to succeed. But as the years progressed, his school grades declined drastically, dashing his chances at being an English teacher, leaving him to work as a photo technician for his father, who ran a highly reputable newspaper business. This would be yet another trigger that would lead Sotomo down a path of darkness, depravity, and murder. With unachieved goals and the feeling of being a failure. His lack of relationship with his family and abuse from others throughout his life led him to struggle to make friends in his adult life. Instead of turning to others for moral support, he retreated deeper into himself, becoming obsessed with horror films, anime, fantasy books, graphic pornography, and amassing a huge collection of videos from various genres in that space. But folks, being into horror films, enjoying anime and porn, are not red flags. I mean sure, the level that you are into those activities could lead to some red flags, but they alone are not the causal factors that create a serial killer. Journals and reports on Tsutomu make it out that the media he consumed was the issue, and solely the issue. The media he consumed only reinforced the desires he already had, but they are by no means the point of action by which Tsutomu would begin killing. That media was banded together with a genre of pornography that would have raised red flags. At the age of 21, Sotomo delved into child pornography, starting him on a personal path of depravity that would play the main theme in the murders he committed, and whilst alone in his room, no contact with others, the outside world, and just hours upon hours of time to burn to reinforce this twisted desire. But that, again, was not the trigger. Yes, of course it would bring issues of its own, but murder, aggression, in my opinion, would be quite a leap. So what was that trigger? The trigger that blew a hole in Satomu's sanity was a different consumption altogether. And it all came down in 1988. There was one person out of all his family members that meant the world to Satomu, One of the few people in his life that gave him love showed him respect and supported what he did, and that was his grandfather. He loved him, respected him, and couldn't get enough of the bond that they had. In a place of darkness, his grandfather was the shining light. When his grandfather died in 1988, it was the straw that broke Hordor's back, mates. At the age of 26, Sutomo reaccounted that he consumed his grandfather's ashes. I'm not going to say I get it, but I understand in a twisted way what he was trying to achieve in his own warped reality. He was trying to get as close as possible to him, the only person that loved him, to be with him just that bit longer, just that bit closer. He quoted that it was his attempt to retain something from him. But here is where it all began. Age 26, the death of his grandfather created an irreparable crack in his psyche. It was that year that he began watching his sister as she showered, and when he confronted, attacked her. When his father's wife scolded him, he attacked her, and any sort of control exercise on him, he lashed out and attacked. The first real show of aggression, of rage, and evidence of satomo losing control. No reports were made, and the incidents were completely ignored. Again, allowing this sort of behavior to grow, and a lack of care and love from his parents and family allowed it to fester. Totomo lost control on the day after his 26th birthday, which led to the beginning of four child murders in the space of 10 months, all of which were below the age of 7. Rest their souls the names of the children who were murdered by this creature. Marie Kono, age 4. Masami Yoshizawa, age 7. Erika Namba, age 4, and Ayako Nomoto, age 5. I wanted to include them here to be remembered, respectfully. People often remember the killer, and I often read, What is your favorite killer? in posts online and discussion boards. It sends shivers down my spine, mates. To me, researching killers is understanding the scenario and situations that created them and not to idolize them as some pop culture plaything. People have died, these are someone's daughters, someone's sons, and should be treated with respect. The four children that he killed were innocent, but need to be remembered. Not in the shadow of the killer, but as an independent and great loss of life. And with great respect, let's learn more about the murders that took place. Mary Connor vanished whilst playing at a friend's house. He convinced the girl to get into his black Nissan Langley, taking her to a wooded area and then convincing her again to let him take pictures of her, talking to her for roughly half an hour to do so. She was then strangled, undressed, her body sexually abused, and then left there to decompose. Satoma would then keep her clothes, which is something a lot of serial killers do, a sort of sexual trophy for them, to recall what they did and playing into his sexual fantasies, reliving those last moments. After waiting five months, he returned, cutting off her hands and feet, again to keep them as trophies, made easier by the decomposition of her flesh, but something would compel him to go further, to communicate with those that loved her, a sort of sick ritual of his own. He would then go back once more, burn the entire body to ashes in a furnace leaving only teeth and bone ash. Sending that to the family. I can't help but think, in a sick twisted way, he was initially apologising and allowing her family to be with her. So why do I think this? He ate his grandfather's ashes to retain something from him, in a desperate way to prolong the love from his grandfather. To remind him of the love lost. And in kind, he sends Marie Connor's ashes to her family so that they can retain something of her, in some sort of warped realisation that he's doing them a favour and acknowledging that he's done something wrong. Let me go one step further to push this. Alongside her ashes, he sent a postcard that read, Marie, cremated, bones, investigate, prove. Prove, folks, why the word prove? Either a sick challenge or an insane person's plea to be caught. Apparently, Sotoma would then communicate to the media under a female alias, Yuko Imad, stating her responsibility in the crime, sending postcards like this back to the family under that codename. There must be a sense of guilt here surely, wrapped of course in a warped reality, an acknowledgement of a deed done wrong with the fear of punishment being the only deterrent. He would later go on to say that he himself never did the crimes. In fact, it was his alter ego, Ratman. And I'm not making this up. Ratman would speak to him and force him to commit these crimes. Perhaps a level of schizophrenia, hallucinations, delusions perhaps, that compelled him to do what he did. He even drew Ratman during his court hearings to describe the creature that possessed him. Or at least, the creature he thought possessed him. Perhaps the real issue was that, he couldn't reconcile the fact that the creature Ratman was, in fact, himself. One and a half months later, Masami Yoshizawa was persuaded, captured and killed in the exact same way that Mari had been murdered, down to the same location, same intent. Just terrible. Two months later, Erika Namba, walking from her friend's house, was picked up and taken to Naguri Saitama, again forced to take off her clothes and pictures taken. This time, though, leaving a postcard with their family that read, Erica, cold, cough, throat, rest, death. To me, and this is my opinion only, there is a clear shift here. A focus on suffering. Less about wanting to be caught at this point, more about recounting her pain. The words used are strikingly different. Focus on how Erica was, and not on finding the body as the first postcard alluded to. His reasons for killing are changing, and the answer lies in the language he uses. The first postcard prompted the police to look, but now it's discussing the emotional trauma his victim went through, and to his family. His mindset has changed, and to some extent he's sharing the thoughts that drive him to do what he does. He's enjoying what he's doing. A cruelty streak that didn't come across in the first postcard. Satomo, just kept on spiraling down and down. His final murder before being caught took place on June 6th, 1989. There was a couple of months gap because people in the area were beginning to get suspicious and the alert was raised after three children were missing. Now, some of you might be thinking, mate, bloody hell, three children have to go missing for this town to start getting worried or active about it. Well, Japan had never seen anything like this, It was, and to some extent still is, perceived as safe. This would be akin to Australia decades ago regarding security, where people would just never lock their doors. Until a thief enters and steals a whole bunch of your stuff. Then the attitude changes, right? The town of Itsukaichi was, frankly, unprepared. And with the disappearances happening so quickly, and no leads, with no real experience in this sort of crime... The police were left in a confused state, with the police at a loss as to where to start, and friends and neighbours accusing each other or at least suspecting each other of doing strange things, all acting as cover for Sutomu. The final murder was really where I believed Sutomu felt comfortable in what he was doing, and all essence of humanity foregone. At first he knew it was wrong, then he moved into cruelty, focusing on the pain and anguish then it became normal for him. The fourth murder was Ayoko Nomoto, taken from a park, taking her pictures, strangling her, and then taking the body of the child home. So no different to the previous, except for taking the body home this time. He would then place the body on a bed, position her differently, and perform sexual acts on the corpse. Truly disgusting. There are images out there on the web from police reports with her tied to a bed, her arms slit, and blood all over her body. I'm tossing up between including those pictures in the episode as a link, but they'll at least be in the research notes that I use to compile this information. So please, when looking at the reference material, be wary of those around you. As serial killers progress in their killings, they push their boundaries, initially working within the limits of what they usually do, looking to enhance their thrill, and Sotomo is no different. This time, Sutomo waited for the body to decompose, slit her wrists, drank her blood, ate her hands, and buried the body in the hills in a nearby cemetery. And it was this last act that would lead to Sutomo's downfall. Now at this point I want to surmise the first part of this episode. First though, some questions. Questions that I'd like your help with, just your opinion really, to see what other ideas are out there in this space. If Tommy was shown love, in any capacity by his family, would he have turned out to be a serial killer still? Was the first postcard a challenge or a call to be caught, trapped as a victim in his own mind by an alter ego? And lastly, was the second postcard the acceptance of his desires? Yes, these are purposely obtuse questions, but if you get the chance, leave your response in the comments. You lovely people are really diverse, and reading your thoughts helps me understand different points of view. I know in this episode I talk a lot about relationships. About family, about care, compassion and love. And my sympathy only extends to the point where his adulthood begins. I fundamentally believe that with family that was far more supportive, showed him love and interest on who he was and monitored him during this time, his life and many others would have been vastly different. And what are your thoughts on the concept of favourite killer? Am I interpreting this wrongly? I'd love to hear your thoughts. Now folks, this is part one of the Sotomo Miyazaki episode. We've covered his background, who he was, what led him to perhaps turn into the creature he became, the horrible murders he committed, the people he unrightfully took from this world, and the town of Itsukaichi, one that was shaken to its core by the depravity of the murders that took place. So thank you for listening to the very first part of Tsutomu Miyazaki. And if I've made any errors, feel free to correct me. If you disagree with my inferences, weigh in and share your own. This is an open forum, so I'm keen to hear your thoughts. Agree, disagree, doesn't matter. I'd love to hear them. If you like what I'm doing... Feel free to leave an iTunes review, or support the podcast directly on Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash sfgt. Doing these episodes are morbid, and they always leave a bad taste in my mouth, but they serve to educate me on the horrors out there, and the dangers to be aware of in this life. Mates, have a lovely day and safe night, and I'll see you again for part two, provided my internet doesn't turn into a potato. Also this Friday, I'll be covering sentencing, family drama, mental illness, further murder details, the inner thoughts of Tsutomu and Ratman, and more details surrounding the case. As always, mates, till next, we meet.